What's up, everybody? Not my house is in the house. This is your host, Eric. And as always, right next to me is my co-host, Zach. Zach, what's going on this morning? Hey, it's just an honor today. You know that I'm a history nut when it comes to the history of basketball. And this is kind of a unique story. This is going to be a different guest than what we've normally had on the show. So I'm just really excited to learn a little something new today. It's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, absolutely. He's the author of Box Out of the NBA, Remembering the Eastern Professional Basketball League. He's an award-winning journalist, attorney, contributor to the uh, page of various newspapers. He's also known for many years as the director of publications for a federal government agency. We're looking forward to learning so much more about him and his book. Excited to have Mr. Sil Sobel. How are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. How are you guys doing? We're doing good. Thanks for coming on the show today. Um, oh, before we uh, you know, start with, with getting to uh, the basketball talk, we always like to learn a little bit about our guests. So uh, where did you grow up and what was, uh, what was the hoop scene like where you grew up? Well, uh, that's going to lead us right into the book because I grew up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, uh, which uh, uh, has a lot of uh, recently famous residents, including the President of the United States, of course, and uh, had a great childhood there. Uh, small town, but uh, lots of friends. And uh, the basketball scene was predominated by uh, three things, high school, the University of Scranton, and of course the uh, Scranton Miners of the Eastern Basketball League. Uh, so, uh, you know, back in the 1960s when I grew up, the NBA, there was uh, very little cable television. It was just kind of starting. So the NBA was on Sunday afternoons, uh, one day, one game a week. Um, and then on weekends, we went to the Catholic Youth Center to watch the uh, Scranton Miners play. So uh, Eastern League basketball was a huge part of my childhood and my co-author's childhood, Jay Rosenstein. He and I grew up uh, as huge fans. Our parents, our fathers started taking us to the games. We were about seven or eight years old. And, you know, that was our pro basketball. That was our big thing. So we uh, we uh, just idolized the team, uh, would listen to the road games on the radio when they weren't at home. Uh, um, and uh, all our lives, Jay and I remained friends pretty much from kindergarten right on through. We went to college together at Georgetown in Washington, D.C. Uh, both live in the D.C. area. Uh, we'd get together for years and always talk about the Eastern League and say, you know, someday we got to write a book about it. And uh, several years ago, we said, you know what? We aren't getting any younger. Now's the time to start writing a book. So we started tracking down former players who we had idolized as kids, and they were delighted to hear from us. We talked about um, 25 or so former players, plus former coaches, referees, fans, and such of the league, and uh, just started working on the book, which kind of, it was, uh, it, it was sort of a, something we, we talked about since childhood. And uh, finally, it came to fruition. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting stuff. And, you know, I'm actually really interested in kind of your own basketball experiences and playing days. Like, I think our listeners would be really excited to hear kind of about um, how far you really took your basketball. Like, did you play in high school? Did you play blacktop college? Like, uh, what can you tell our listeners about um, your experiences with, with the game from your own <laughs> personal level? Well, you know, I always used to say I'm not only am I small, but I'm slow. Uh, so, uh, I mean, I at my peak height is, is five foot four and a half inches. Uh, I love to shoot. Um, uh, I played, you know, in my driveway in the neighborhood. And then we used to go over to Jay's house and we played in the uh, basketball rim, you know, attached to a telephone pole in the alley behind his house. And grew up, uh, you know, playing at neighborhood courts, loved to play pickup games, uh, tried real hard to be good enough to be able to play, you know, on the high school team. But I went to a, uh, a small Jesuit high school, Scranton Prep. And uh, freshman year, I think, you know, we had about uh, we had 106 kids in our boys in our freshman class. We were all boys freshman and sophomore year and became co-ed junior year. Uh, of the 106 boys in our freshman class, 75 of us tried out for the freshman basketball team. And, uh, you know, I was gone in the first cut. Um, but uh, we had hoops, you know, in the playground, well, outside the, outside the uh, you know, in the recreation area, outside the school. 
So I was someone who always played pickup games, always played, you know, um, intramural in college and law school. Uh, I love playing, but, uh, you know, my future was more as a writer uh, than as a player. Uh, I still try to shoot in my driveway when I can and my neighbor's driveway, but competitively pretty much pick up an intramurals. Uh, Jay, on the other hand, as a uh, you know, kid growing up, Jay was kind of our star. He, he grew up uh, uh, quickly, uh, hit 5'6", uh, by the time he was about 12, and uh, everyone figured you know, he would just be a terrific high school player and such, great shooter. His nickname was Radar uh, as a kid because <laughs> you know, he couldn't miss from long range. But unfortunately, he stopped growing at 5'6". So uh, by the time he got yeah. to high school, you know, um, uh, it, it, all the other kids had kind of grown up past him. So uh, he played on the Jewish Community Center team, which was, you know, a pretty good competitive team. Played uh, other JCCs and, and, and teams in, throughout eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, but like me, you know, he was pretty much an intramural player. Uh, but, uh, you know, both of us still adored the game and... Uh, uh, you know, try to play whenever we can. Yeah, and I know the feeling when you stop growing. I uh, grew to be six two. Um, by the time I hit seventh grade, never grew an inch after that. So I, uh, I was expecting to be six nine, six ten. Never quite happened. So I totally, <laughs> I totally get it. But well, um, I, I, I think to it's be six two. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I can't complain too much then. No, but, uh, no, you really. I, I, I mean, deaf ears. No sympathy. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's great, though, that you didn't lose the love for the game, even when maybe the career didn't pan out the way that you wanted it to in high school. Um, but when you're growing up, who were some of the guys that you really loved to watch? Like, or maybe some familiar names from your area? Like, who were some of your childhood heroes that made you really love the game? Well, um, you know, as a kid, uh, it's funny. One of my first gifts that I remember uh, for my parents uh, for Hanukkah was a large radio, which actually I still have here somewhere. And I was able to hear the Cincinnati Royals basketball games. Uh, somehow they had a very powerful uh, radio station. So I used to listen to those games at night. And I remember absolutely loving Oscar Robertson and Adrian Smith, who was the backboard for the Cincinnati Royals in the early 60s. Um, so, you know, those are kind of, uh, uh, two of my heroes in terms of the NBA. Um, uh, we used to watch a lot of Philadelphia games, New York Knicks. My father grew up in New York, was a big New York, uh, uh city sports fan. So, uh, you know, when the Knicks were on, that was always a pleasure, but locally we had the university of Scranton and, um, there were two guys at the U uh, who were, you know, kind of the stars when I was a young kid. One was a guy named uh, Bobby Steinberg, who was from Scranton and who had a younger brother, Jeff Steinberg, who was my sister's age, who I'd known, you know, since I was a little guy, I was a little kid and, and, and he was in grade school. And the Steinberg brothers were two of the, you know, star basketball players to come out of the Scranton area. And uh, Bobby ended up playing for the University of Scranton uh, uh, with a guy named Gene the Machine Mumford, who was from New York, from Jamaica, Queens, I believe. And actually, uh, uh, Gene was like, at that time, the best player ever to come out of the University of Scranton and ended up, I think, uh, being drafted in a late round back when the NBA drafted like seven, eight rounds. Uh, he was, I think, a late round draft choice or a free agent and actually played in the Knicks camp briefly, uh, played in the Rucker tournament. So he was a fairly well-known player in New York City. But the Steinberg brothers, you know, growing up in Scranton and watching them play, you know, at the Jewish Community Center and um, uh, playing for the local University of Scranton, uh, you know, they were the hometown boys. So we worshipped them and Getting back to my career, such as it was, uh, you know, we used to play pickup games at uh, Jewish Community Center in Scranton and uh, also at an outdoor court near Jay's house. And every now and then, one or both of the Steinberg brothers would show up and, 
you know, the little kids would kind of stand in awe. And if there'd be a pickup game and they'd have, you know, uh, seven of the older kids and they needed some little guys to kind of fill out, you know, five on five and they pick one of us. I mean, it was such a great pleasure. And and to this day, I vividly remember coming down court on a three on one with Jeff Steinberg leading the break and his eyes sort of glanced to where I should go. And I went there and he hit me with the perfect bounce pass, bounce pass. And I made the layup and it was like the highlight of my life that I got an assist from, from Jeff Steinberg. <laughs> And, I mean, I still remember it. And interestingly enough, to kind of connect this meandering story, um, when the book in the Eastern League came out, I got an email. Was it an email or a, uh, a Facebook message, one or the other, from, of all people, Bobby Steinberg, who had heard about the book from oh, friends wow. of his in Scranton, and he had grown up as an Eastern League fan. And, you know, here I am. I don't know if you, you know, know who I am. I'm Bobby Steinberg. I said, yeah, Bobby, of course I know who you are. And uh, <laughs> uh, so that Eastern League, you know, writing about the book has, has, has helped me get in touch with my childhood heroes in more ways than one. So, uh, uh, you know, it kind of did come full circle. And I remember telling Bobby about that story about the time his brother Jeff hit me with the pass. And that was like the pinnacle of my basketball playing career. Yeah, no, I love those stories and just the little things like the communication, the eyes. Uh, those are the little things that separate good players and great players, in my opinion. Uh, we had the chance to talk to Tom Van Arsdale uh, not not too long ago. So bringing back the Cincinnati Royals on the radio stories, uh, you know, that that brings back a lot of fun memories for us, too. Well, well there, but, uh, there you go, because Tommy Van Arsdale was also one of my favorite players. And in fact, <laughs> Uh, you know, when I, and I did make our eighth grade basketball team, I should have said that I did make the eighth grade basketball team. And when we picked Jersey numbers, I wanted number six because that was Ty Van Arsdale's number. So and somewhere in a cabinet somewhere, I think I still have my eighth grade basketball Jersey with number six on it. <laughs> so if you talk to Tommy Van Arsdale again, tell him to talk to a guy who idolized him the wars Jersey number. So that that's funny, but yeah, he, he was a great that's player. Yeah, he's a great guy too. He's a great guy. He's got a he's got a art facility with his with his brother Dick now. So they're they're doing well. So I'll, we'll definitely reach out and let him know about that. He'll he'll love that. But um, yeah, yeah. I want to jump into your writing though. Um, and I'm really curious what got you into writing, and if there's any authors who really inspired you or who you tried to maybe emulate your writing style after. Like, who were some of your writing heroes? Um, uh, boy. You know, that's a good one. I, I've always liked to read. You know, my parents, well, my mother was a teacher. Um, and, you know, my father loved reading history. So there are always, always lots of books in our house. So I, I always read, I always read newspapers. One of my great joys, my father, like I said, was a New Yorker. And we used to go to New York City fairly often. And I used to love, you know, stopping in a newsstand, picking up a newspaper, uh, reading it. So in terms of uh, writers, you know, I love sports writing. I always love sports. Uh, certainly the opportunity to read Red Smith was great. Arthur Daly were the great columnists in New York City when I was a kid growing up. Um, in Scranton, we had two guys, Jimmy Calpin and Chick Feldman, who you know people in Scranton would know about. And Chick Feldman and Jimmy, I think, were fairly well known. Outside of the uh, immediate Scranton area, uh, they were boxing writers. So, uh, you know, I used to read their stuff. There was a sports writer, a guy named Don Artunis, who wrote books about the 1950, well, a 1950 Brooklyn Dodgers teams. And, of course, all of the players, you know, they were fictionalized names, but you could tell who they were modeled after. The, the center fielder, of course, was Duke Snyder. And, uh, you know, you could tell who the Jackie Robinson character was. And um, so I used to love to read that. Um, but I can't say I necessarily modeled my writing after anyone. I think like most college kids at some point when I, you know, uh, started reading Hemingway, Hemingway, I kind of adapted the uh, ribbon sentences and the, and, and the tight, you know, kind of terse writing. And I think I still do sort of use that style. I think you know, maybe my sentences have gotten longer than, than than desirable in Hemingway's, 
but I still do tend to like short paragraphs and, and shorter sentences um, and, uh, you know, cleaner word use, try to find the right word. Uh, those are all things that are important to me as a writer. Um, Jay and I both were always interested in writing, you know, going back to our collaborations. We edited our eighth grade yearbook. Um, oh, yeah. and, and that was the first thing we did together. In college, I was an American studies major with a concentration in English and history. Those are my two loves. So um, always done a lot of writing. Uh, I was a newspaper reporter immediately after college for three years while I worked summers as a copy boy and then as an intern at the Scranton Tribune in Scranton. Um, did that for summers coming home from, from college. Worked in Gannett news service in washington dc my senior year at georgetown and then worked for one of the Gannett papers in binghamton for two and a half years immediately after college so my first love is is journalism um and i always you know said that that you know was what i was going to do as a career and i went to law school and uh really went there with the uh, intention of coming back and being a reporter who would cover courts but, you know, one thing led to another, and I, I ended up in practice for two and a half years with a law firm in D.C., which I enjoyed, but I, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be my career. And you know, I started looking for other jobs, and I found a ad for attorney slash writer. And I remember thinking, gee, I, I've done both of those things in my life, so uh, uh, <laughs> let, let's try it. And it was an agency called the Federal Judicial Center. Uh, whose responsibilities provide education and training programs for federal court judges and federal court employee, uh, the court staff members. And they needed someone to write uh, publications, uh, newsletters, and manuals and guides for judges. And that's what I started doing. And after a few years, they created a division, put me in charge of it, of all publications that we produced. So I really did get to combine both my loves. I was involved working with judges and law professors and, and other staff members in writing books that would be useful to judges while they were on the bench and in chambers and to other court staff on court procedures and operations, um, doing the editing and just being around both law and writing. So that was that was always kind of a, uh, uh, just just in terms of the substance of the work, it was just a the perfect job for me, but I still did kind of, uh, you know, miss the sports writing and um, uh, stayed, you know, close to it and uh, decided, you know, someday I'd, I'd, I'd get back to it uh, at, I guess, about 15 or so years into my career when I had children. Uh, my children started asking me, you know, about what I did for a living. And I said, I made book for, books for the government. So my older daughter, Marissa, asked me if I could make a book for her about how the U.S. government works. And I said, sure, I, I could do that. And I wrote, you know, my 12-page manuscript on the three branches of government, what each one does, what the responsibilities were about elections, and gave it to her, and she loved it, and told a friend of mine, he said, you, you might be able to get that published. And, uh, you know, long story short, I did. I found a publisher. And that got me involved as an author of children's books. So uh, shortly before How the U.S. Government, the first book came out, How the U.S. Government Works it came out, my younger daughter, who said, well, you wrote a book for Marissa. What are you going to do for me? And, you know, I said, well, what do you want me to do? She said, well, how about writing a book on presidents? And I said, well, there are a lot of presidents. How about if I write about a few presidents and how the president, how presidents get elected? She said, yeah, yeah, that'll work. So my second book, Presidential Elections and Other Cool Facts, came out. And uh, so now I had two books. So my, my editor said, Mr. Sobel, what are you going to do next? And I explained that you know my older daughter uh, recommended the first book, and my younger daughter came up with the second book, and I didn't have any more kids. So I was fresh <laughs> out of ideas. And she said, well, you should have had more children, but how about if you write a book on the U.S. Constitution? So... I did that. And, you know, long story short, I now have five books for children on U.S. history and government, which is great. And I love that aspect of writing. And, you know, I've gone into classrooms and such and talked to kids and done some Zoom book talks and talked to libraries and book fairs. Uh, but the sports thing kind of hung around. 
And um, uh, 10 years ago, uh, a friend of mine decided who had been writing high school sports in our community, Quince Orchard area in Gaithersburg, Maryland, uh, he decided to retire, move to, to uh, Palm Springs. And there was an opening for a sports writer for the local paper, which was basically covering high school football, basketball, and such other sports as you know, I had time to do. So I started sports writing again and kind of went back to the beginning. So I did that for eight years until the paper, sadly, like many local newspapers, was unable to keep up with the economics and had a fold. So I covered high school football and basketball for eight years for the community, my local high school, and that was just that was just a gas. I mean, I I, I loved that. Uh, and then the basketball book came up. So I've really been able to do a lot of different things, uh, combining all of my 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 passions, law, sports, government. It's it's all come together. I've been able to to, to to write about it. So it's 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 I've been fortunate. That, that's awesome. And um, how did the idea for writing about the Eastern Professional Basketball League come up, though? Like, I mean, obviously, it was a big deal in your hometown, but like, what exactly clicked where you said, we got to write a book about this? You know, <laughs> it's a great story. Um, for one thing, it's not very well known. Uh, and it was such a typically, I mean, for Jay and for Jay and me, it was, it, it's such a typically Northeastern Pennsylvania Scranton thing uh, because, you know, Scranton had a team and our arch rival, you know, the city 10 miles down the road, Wilkes-Barre had a team and, and there was a huge rivalry back then between Scranton and Wilkes-Barre that, that actually you know, originated back in the coal mining days when both cities had baseball teams. Um, and it, it, there was the local flavor, but there's also the fact that you know, the era that Jay and I grew up in, um, the, 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 the 60s, uh, particularly the early 60s, uh, pre-ABA days, there were eight to 10 NBA teams. You know, that was it. They had 10 guys on a roster. So you're talking 80 to 100 guys in the NBA. Compared to 450 players in the NBA today. So what we were seeing in Scranton you know, was that second hundred uh, who would have been top NBA players today. Uh, but, you know, because of numbers and because of other factors, including race, there was kind of an unwritten quota for the 50s and certainly first part of the 60s on how many, um, you know, black players they have on the team. I mean, for throughout the 50s, it was like two players on a team, 60s, maybe three or four black players on a team. So you had so many great players who very few people know about, and we got to see them in Scranton, you know, in Wilkes-Barre, in Allentown, in Trenton, in Sunbury, in Hazleton, in the small towns, mostly in Pennsylvania or right around Eastern Pennsylvania. And we were seeing some fabulous basketball players who played only on weekends. They'd leave, mostly came from New York or Philadelphia. They'd drive through the mountains, through snow, uh, to come play in these small town high school gyms where the fans are right on top of them. Uh, and back then there were smoke filled gyms and, uh, they play their games. They drive back Sunday night, go back to their day jobs. And these guys were legends and no one heard about them. No one knows about them except those of us who grew up in Eastern League cities and were privileged to hear them. Uh, I mean, there were also a lot of characters too and funny stories and, uh, it was just so entertaining, so much a part of our lives. And I don't know if you had an opportunity to see the Facebook page for Eastern League fans, but it's almost 2,000 members. Mike has gone over 2,000 members now. And, you know, all those guys who grew up in, you know, there were women too who grew up in, in, in Wilkes-Barre and Hazleton and Allentown and Wilmington. They, they share the same kinds of stories we do. It was such a huge part of our lives to see Guys who were really legendary players, and I can start throwing out names. I mean, you know, John Chaney, people know him as a coach, but he was a terrific basketball player, a terrific basketball player who Hubie Brown, who also played in the Eastern League, said would have been a 10-year NBA guard. I mean, uh, Hubie, you know, would have been a, a guard in the NBA today, but he played, you know, in the Eastern League and then got hurt and his career as a player ended. We saw Jim Beheim, you know, Jimmy Beheim. 
back in the uh, in the 1960s, played for five years in the Eastern League. Uh, he was a backup player his first year, but then the uh, NBA ABA came along, took 25 or so of the top stars of the Eastern League, and Bayham now became a you know a starter and a top player in the Eastern League once that first level of talent went to the ABA. And you've got guys from the 50s like Hal King Lear, who was an All-American player at Temple, Wally Choice, Julius McCoy, Tom Hemans, uh, Cleo Hill, who played in the NBA, and you know, his story is fairly well known. He ended up playing, you know, in the in the Eastern League. Uh, Bob Love started in the Eastern League. Ray Scott played in the Eastern League yeah. for three years. Sonny Hill. The list goes on and on, you know. And and these all would have been terrific NBA players with that kind of talent. And here we are in Scranton, PA, seeing these guys play for what fifty cents a buck a game, uh, and not only seeing them, but you know, it's a small gym. You're right on top of them, and after the game, we hang out you know, outside the locker rooms and most of these guys were pretty friendly and, you know, they talk with us. And so it was this great experience, this slice of basketball history is, as you say, as a basketball history lover uh, that very few people know about. And that Jay and I said, you know, we got to share this story uh, beyond those of us who grew up in Eastern League cities and real basketball devotees, of course, have heard about the Eastern League. You know, it was it was legendary in its time. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, most people haven't. And uh, the players we've talked to are just delighted we've had an opportunity to tell their story. In fact, John Chaney, you know, who, who sadly, you know, he died uh, boy a few months before the book came out, which was very sad to us uh, because he was a huge help. And we really wanted him to be able to have an opportunity to you know, to see the book, participate in it. But he did read uh, a preview of it, and he wrote a review that's on the back cover where he commended us for, you know, bringing to life uh, these 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 great former players who very few people had ever had the opportunity to, to hear about or watch play. So, you know, there are all those aspects coming together um, that uh, just just moved us to write this book and you know, the only regret we have, as Jay has said in other interviews, um, is that we didn't start sooner because so many of the, the great players are gone. We didn't have a chance to talk to Julius McCoy, who was the league's all-time leading scorer. And uh, I mean, I don't know if you guys have heard of these names, but it's unfortunate. Okay, good. I, I'm, I'm so glad uh, because... Um, uh, Boy, these guys were were just just terrific players. I mean, Switch McKinney, um, you know what a great nickname, and 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 George Blaney, uh, who played also also played in the Eastern League and ended up becoming a you know successful college coach. George said, you know, the thing about Switch is, if you go through life with a with a nickname like Switch, you better be able to back it up, and and he did. <laughs> um, so uh, you know. Uh, it, it, these legendary figures to us, uh, we're just hoping more people have an opportunity to, to, to hear their stories. Well, there's a lot of passion in your voice talking about this for sure. And uh, it's, <laughs> it's neat to hear, you know, hear about this because I don't think a lot of people do know about this league, you know, so I think it will get people listen, you know, thinking to, to research more too, like, you know, to purchase the book or, get on the internet and start researching, you know, this league more. Um, one of the questions I have is, you know, in the early NBA or even the ABA, ABA there was always interesting negotiations or trades. I remember hearing guys were getting traded for, you know, a bunch of basketballs or, uh, or, or, or washer and dryer, crazy stories like that. You know, um, what was the average pay for these guys? And uh, how were contractor trade negotiations handled? Was there, was there even agents back then? <laughs> Are you kidding? Um, <laughs> not the Eastern <laughs> League. Okay, well, boy, that question is rich with different uh, directions that I could take it in. Um, some of which, if this is a family show, I probably shouldn't. Um, so I'll avoid those or save those for the end. But uh, let's start with pay. I mean, 50s, 60s, you're talking about $35 a game is the pay um, that uh, you know, players would start off at. Now, you know, stars, a guy like Hal Lear, 
got a couple hundred a game. You know, I mean, he was he was a, a terrific player and, and a great scorer. Uh, and I love his nickname, Hal Tinglier. I mean, it's obvious, but it's such a great nickname. And, and again, he earned it. Um, some of the top players to make a few hundred. A Bill Spivey, you know, the legendary uh, center from Kentucky, the the game's real first great seven footer. Uh, who never got to play in the NBA because he was banned because of accusations that he was involved in the 1951 college gambling scandal, uh, even though they were never proved. So, you know, Spivey played most of his career in the Eastern League, and, uh, you know, he got, you know, a couple hundred a game, maybe 300 a game. Uh, but the average player was making 50, 100, 150 a game. Uh and, you know, that was what they were supposedly making. Now, getting paid in the Eastern League was always an iffy proposition. Uh, some teams paid their players, some eh, not all the time. Um, you know, Howie Landa, who was a great player, used to talk about the pay being uh, predicated on the number of of, uh, 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 of fans in the stands. And, uh, you know, now, he used to drive into uh, drive up from Philadelphia with John Cheney, and he remembers you know Cheney literally counting cars in the parking lot and saying, "Oh, are we going to get paid tonight, Howie? We're we going to get paid." And Cheney, you know, and I'll never forget him telling this story. Love to tell the story about the Lebanon Pennsylvania team, who, or I guess it was Lancaster, which was near Lebanon, and Lancaster had teams in the league off and on, and on some nights. You know, they didn't have a lot of fans. There wasn't a lot of money. So they would get paid supposedly in rolls of bologna uh, from because I think the Lebanon, uh, Lebanon was where there, uh, there were a lot of butchers and they made bologna and salami and stuff. So I think whoever owned one of the meat companies was a part owner of the team. So if they didn't have money, they'd pay the guys in rolls of bologna. You know, wow. they got paid in meat. So. <laughs> I mean, this is some of the legend of the Eastern League, but I guess the long, you know, the, the way the story comes out is there wasn't a lot of, of, these guys didn't make a lot of money for the most part. Although now comparing it to the NBA, if you were a star, if you were a player like Hal Lear and you made 200 bucks a game and played in other leagues, and these guys would do that, they play in other leagues, you know, sometimes under assumed names, and then they play in summer tournaments. They can make several thousand dollars uh, playing in the Eastern League, plus have jobs during the week. And between what they make in the Eastern League and what they make in their jobs, they make more than they would if they were playing in the NBA. Plus, they get a leg up on their career. You know, if they were teachers, they would have you know, been teaching for five or six or seven years and already be established that rather than if they had been in the NBA, which was paying, you know, Seven, eight, nine thousand dollars for uh, players back then uh, per season. So some of these guys said actually financially they made more money uh, playing in the Eastern League and getting paid per game if they got paid and having a, a regular job during the week than if they had had decided to go with with the NBA. This was, you know, this is uh, something that seems so alien to those of us who know about you know twelve uh, the twelfth man on the bench getting two million dollars today wasn't happening back then. So um, it wasn't a lot of money, but compared to what professional athletes were making at the time, for them, it was a nice supplement. And for guys who had families already, uh, it was an obvious choice to kind of start their careers, their off-court careers, and then supplement their income by playing in the, in the Eastern League. As far as trades go, yeah, there are stories about um, trades being made uh, for uh, a bunch of basketballs or for a date with somebody's attractive secretary. Uh, all that goes on. That's part of the Eastern League lore, too. So, uh, you know, that, that, that's part of the background. But uh, it, 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 it was a different time. You know, it's wild to hear you say people were playing under assumed names. You know, when you th when you think about that, like playing in other, other leagues under assumed names, like I, I just picture like, 
you know, Michael Jordan playing as like Fred Jordan in a different league or something like that to, to make a little extra money. That's, that's pretty wild. What, um, how did the league come to an end? Was it a financial thing or was it the merging of, you know, the ABA coming in and then merging with the NBA? How did, how did the league unfortunately come to its demise? Um, I will answer that question, but I, I just thought of one other thing about, you know, playing under assumed names. Apparently, there were a group of guys in the um, uh, 50s, early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, a barnstorming team called the Mass Marvels. And they were apparently Villanova basketball players, including Paul Arison, who, you know, was an NBA Hall of Famer eventually. Oh, yeah. And they put on masks and everyone knew who they were. But. <laughs> Uh, this way, you know, they had assumed names and they would do barnstorming tours during the off season, playing semi-pro teams who were the predecessors to the to the Eastern League. So, I mean, that was, you know, how people, yeah, it, it was going on back then. And Arizon, of course, ended up his career. He, you know, he's the classic story of uh, how people had to decide between career or NBA. In 62, I guess it was, when the Philadelphia Warriors uh, moved to San Francisco. Arizon's near the end of his career. And um, he didn't want to move to San Francisco because he had a great job with IBM in Philadelphia. So he literally quit, retired from the NBA and decided to stay in Philadelphia and work for IBM and then played for the Camden Bullets. Camden's right across the river from Philadelphia uh, for the Eastern League. And he was making, you know, like 300 bucks a game. He's Paul Harrison, for God's sake. And, uh, you know, even then he's kind of out of shape and old. But, you know, players would talk about, you know, the guy, he, he'd show up, you know, five minutes before the game. He won't warm up. He'd be confident hacking because he had this, I guess, sinus condition or allergies. And he popped like 30 points a game easily. They said he was the purest shooter they've ever seen. So, um, you know, I mean, that, that, that's an aside, but it, 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 it talks about, you know, just what, what, what professional sports were like back then. Um, in terms of how the league came to an end, um, there were a lot of things. And the beginning of the end certainly was the ABA because it took that top level of talent. You know, when uh, before the ABA came along for players who either couldn't, make the uh, NBA or because of, you know, race or other factors uh, weren't in the NBA, the Eastern League was the next best choice. So, you know, it was the second best, second best professional basketball league around. Well, now you have the ABA plus the NBA, you know, started expanding to uh, compete with the ABA. Uh, the color you know, barriers, the race barriers were off. Uh, because the ABA never had one, and the NBA, in order to compete now, it didn't have one anymore. And, um, so now there were two, 300 spots available for professional players in the NBA and ABA, so the top level of talent is going uh, to those leagues. You still get a lot of talented players. I mean, you know, Swish decided to stay. He was happy in, in Binghamton, uh, Stan Pavlik had already started his teaching career. So he was there. There were Wade Bellamy. A lot of good players were established now in their teaching and off-court careers and decided to stay in the Eastern League um, and, and and continue you know, their, their, their off-court professions. But you didn't have that top level of talent. You now have the 1970s you know, economy, the economic recession, uh, Towns like Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Allentown, they're right there in the middle of the Rust Belt. You know, the industries used to keep those small towns going, the coal mines that had kept Scranton, Wilkes-Barre, Hazleton going, Sunbury, you know, they're they're drying up. Coal mining isn't popular. The factories are shutting down. People don't have the discretionary income they used to. So you have those things going on. Plus, you have cable television. You've got basketball coming into your house every night of the week. And multiple games coming in. So, you know, with people now having an opportunity to see NBA players or watch these, you know, second and third tier players uh, locally, it's just not much of a, a of a contest. 
So these small towns could no longer afford, um, you know, to support the cities. So in the mid seventies, the Eastern League now is down to about four, five, six teams, changing franchises every year. And along comes Anchorage, Alaska, and says, "We want to be in the Eastern League. We want a team." So it was a hard choice because you had the travel uh, issues; it would be expensive to fly to Anchorage. The first two years in the league, or few years in the league, Anchorage was so eager to be in the Eastern League. They subsidized the travel. They paid for Eastern League teams to come from Pennsylvania or wherever and play in the league um, the first few seasons. They paid the travel expenses. And the league realized that they just can't survive in those small cities anymore. Um, they needed to go to mid-sized cities. And they started going, you know, South Dakota and Quincy, Mass., and morphed into, because they were no longer an Eastern League, they morphed into the Continental Basketball Association. Um, and um, the Eastern League teams quietly disappeared, I think, by ooh, the late 70s, early 80s, the last of the original Eastern League teams were gone. The Continental League was established. And, you know, they like to say that they, you know, were the successor to the Eastern League, which organizationally they were, uh, but the Continental League was just a very different league than what the old Eastern League used to be. Um, so some can say, I mean, when the Continental League uh, used to say it was the oldest professional basketball league, that's because they traced their, their lineage to when the Eastern League was founded in 1946, uh, six weeks before the Basketball Association of America which was the predecessor to the NBA. But wow. like I say, that, that the difference between this continental and the Eastern is, is very striking. It was, it, was a, it, was, it, it was a new era. Yeah, that, that absolutely makes sense. Um, you, you got to interview some amazing people for this book. I'm a huge Knicks fan. Hubie Brown was a name that came to mind looking at some of these names. How life-changing was it for you growing up as a fan to be able to talk to these guys and hear these stories, especially a guy like Hubie Brown, who is a character for sure. He is a character and it was awesome. I mean, it, you know, it, it was really awesome. Um, we, uh, you know, idolize these guys. And, and, and again, particularly, you know, the local guys, when you grow up as kids, the guys who, you know, Hubie Brown was national, but it didn't mean as much to me personally, as talking to Swish McKinney or Willie Somerset or Bayheim or Richie Garnwall, you know, guys I, I idolize as, as, as kids. Um, uh, but it, 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 you know, it was, on the one hand, it was, just, oh, my God, I'm a little kid again. But, you know, on the other hand, we're also at stages in our life where the difference between, you know, a guy and his mid-60s like me and a guy in their mid-70s or late-70s isn't that huge. We're kind of at the same stage in life. And now relating to them as contemporaries um, was uh, uh, something I hadn't expected but was was really very touching in a lot of ways. I mean, I've continued to be in touch with some of the, the guys we interviewed. I email or from time to time talk on the phone with them. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I may be presumptuous, it may be presumptuous for me to say they're friends, but they're certainly people who are in my life and I'm fortunate to be in their life, their lives. And um, it, it, it's, it, it, it opened my eyes in a lot of ways that these people are, are just guys like me, you know, I mean, uh, you know, John Cheney, you know, I mean, it, I've been very fortunate in that, you know, when I was at Georgetown, I was a sports writer for the campus newspaper. And I got to meet, talk with, cover, write about, work with John Thompson uh, when before he was John Thompson. You know, I mean, he was a second he was in a second year at Georgetown when I was a freshman. So I got to work with him. And I mean, learning, uh, you know, literally sitting, you know, uh, in a John Thompson press conference and hearing him talk about life and race and perceptions, and then getting it from John Cheney over a series of three phone calls that he said, well, I don't have a lot of time. I can't talk long, but, you know, the first one lasted almost two hours. 
and uh, 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 just hearing and learning from John Thompson and John Cheney. Uh, you know, I, it's like a PhD program. I mean, they have so much to offer. And I'm not just, I'm not talking about basketball. Basketball is one thing. They have so much perspective and make you see things different uh, in ways, you know, it's just hasn't been my experience, but it's theirs. I mean, what I remember John Cheney saying is, you know, talking about, you know, it's so sad. He said, I'm not just talking about all the basketball players who never had opportunities to, to, to get the recognition they deserve to play at the level they should have. How many scientific experiments weren't made? How many books weren't written? You know, how many great discoveries? You know, uh, how many doctors, how many lawyers, how many teachers could, could we have had? You know, and and it, 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 it was just a great experience and opportunity to really get to, to talk with people like that. Hubie, you know, again, his wisdom and his perception of the game, his telling me, you know, the guys in the Eastern League, many of them would have been all-stars today, you know, and he said many times, he, he thanked me, he said, for, for, for what you're doing, he said, you know, you are bringing back to life some great all-time ballplayers who really never got to, to be in the spotlight, he said, it's a great thing you're doing. So, you know, looking at the book and getting that kind of um, uh, you know, support for for, for, for for our project, for our idea, for people like that. I mean, he hit the nail on the head. Yes, it, it was just, it, it, it was a great opportunity. And, and, and now having the opportunity to tell the story, I mean, it, it, it's been fabulous. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's really cool to, you know, to hear that validation, which is cool, the basketball that you were watching, to hear from a guy like Hubie Brown that a lot of these guys should have been all-stars. That's an amazing thing to hear you know it's also probably brought back a lot of memories as you were writing the book about you know your childhood and watching these games and watching this league basically flourish um speaking of the book let's promote your book real quick um where can our listeners find it and um and uh, is there anything else that you want them to know about like trying to search out for it like i'm, I'm assuming it's probably on amazon is it uh is it a kindle book too or is it or is it just straight paperback and there's our hardcover oh, it is Amazon, BarnesandNoble.com, uh, Books a Million, um, all of the online retailers. You'll find it in some bookstores. It can be ordered through most bookstores. But the way I recommend people get it is to go to the uh, website that we've created for the book, www.easternleaguebook.com. And I'll say that again, www.easternleaguebook, one word. Uh, all lowercase.com because if you go there, we have a link that goes to the publisher's site and also has a code that has 30% off. Uh, so our publisher overpriced the book. Uh, I, I don't mind saying that. They uh, priced it at $38. I mean, I think it's a great book, but $38 is a lot of money for, for, for that book. Um, but you can get 30% off if you order it from the publisher. Now, you don't get free delivery like you would for Amazon, but I think it's still a savings to order it, you know, through the through the website and, and direct from the publisher. So that is, you know, how I promote it. That's how people can get it. Uh, but, you know, if you want to get on Amazon, get on Amazon either way. In terms of other things I'd like to say about the book, our next project, uh, what Jay and I are hoping to do is uh, produce a documentary. Uh, we'd like to go back um, and talk to some of these guys, get them on video for those who unfortunately, have, you know, sadly have passed like John Cheney and Richie Cornwall and former Scranton owner, Arthur Pachter, um, that we have them on audio tape. But what we are looking for is footage uh, of uh, Eastern League games. We've got a few minutes that people shot with handheld Super 8 cameras. And we suspect there are other Eastern League fans out there who also had handheld cameras and might have shot some footage. Or perhaps somewhere there's a, a, a newsman, uh, a journalist, sports writer who remembers some video footage that was shot at their television station. Uh, we haven't been able to find any yet, but we're still looking. So if anyone has any leads on where we could find some good video footage um, on the Eastern League, 
uh, that would be fabulous. You could contact us. Um, if you could contact me, uh, sil.sobel at gmail.com. Um, or you can go to uh, uh, the Facebook page, the Eastern League Book Facebook page, and uh, you know contact me there. But uh, hopefully uh, we will be able to tell their story in a new medium in the next couple of years. So that's uh, that's around two. That'd be great. And, and uh, you know, the power of the Internet, hopefully some people will be reaching out and have some sort of, you know, it's amazing the footage you see in music and uh, stuff that always seemed to have been lost. And then someone has something, like you said, you know, um, there's there's definitely footage that can be found. I I, I, I definitely believe that. We're going to do a quick lightning round with you. Zach's going to ask the questions. It's just one or two word answer to the questions that Zach have. Uh, Zach, are you ready to ask the questions? I am. And uh, my first one is, who's the one guy that you felt could have been a star in the NBA from this league that never got the opportunity? Chris McKinney. Okay. Um, who is one guy that you wish you could have talked to for this book that you weren't able to? Wally Choice. Okay. Wally Choice was one of the league's all-time leading scorers and went on to become a great um, um, uh, community leader in his hometown in New Jersey. Julius McCoy's the other one. Okay. Uh, who do you feel was the most important pioneer or surprising name that really had a huge effect on the league or the game itself from your research? Um, Eddie White. Uh, Eddie White was the Wilkes-Barre Barons longtime uh, coach and owner both when they were a top team in the American Basketball League and uh, for the first decade or so of their Eastern League career. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite story that you learned from doing this project? There's got to be one, one that comes to mind. Uh, yeah, it's not a one-word answer, though. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's fine. Anything goes in lightning round. That's fine. Okay. Uh, Arthur Pachter, the Scranton owner, uh, was um, – driving to Camden, New Jersey, and uh, uh, parked his car outside of the Camden gym. It was kind of a suspect area, um, but the guy came up to him and, and said, uh, you know, Arthur said, can we park your car? He said, yeah, you can park for free, but you got to pay the insurance. And he said, well, what's the insurance? Well, if you pay uh, 50 cents, uh, you'll have uh, a tires when you come back. And Arthur said, you know what? I'm going to pay extra insurance. Here's two bucks, 50 cents for each tire. I want to make sure I got all four of my tires when I come back. So long story short, games played. Scranton lost in the final minutes because of a bad call by a referee. Arthur said it was a home job. Home team always won in the Eastern League. So the referee makes this terrible call. Scranton loses. They get hosed. Arthur's in the car with Bill Spivey and, and his wife is ready to drive home. There's a knock on the window. It's the referee. And Arthur rolls down the window and says, what do you want? He says, someone got my tires, Arthur. I need to ride home to Hazel. <laughs> and Arthur says, no, you know, I'm not going to do it. What they did to you, what you did to me. Rolls up the window, he drives off, leaves the referee there. The referee complains to the league office. The league calls Arthur on the carpet and says, Arthur, give me a reason why we shouldn't. And the commissioner says, give me a reason why we shouldn't discipline you leaving you know the referee stuck in the parking lot in camden and arthur says it's simple he should have paid the insurance <laughs> that's hysterical I love, <laughs> I love it uh but 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 that's a that's an amazing story i'm i'm very thank you very much for that for that story and uh my final question to you is i ask everybody this and it can be anything but what's your favorite basketball memory if you had to pick just one what's that one that always comes to mind oh gosh um Favorite basketball memory, but the high school team, Scranton Prep. Remember, I said that uh, 75 of us tried for the freshman basketball team. Well, the top six who made it all the way to senior year became state champions. The only, the only uh, state championship Scranton Prep has ever won in its long and storied basketball history. And it was the class of 1973 that did it. They did it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on St. Patrick's Day. They started five Irishmen, four Irishmen. Sorry, Chris. Four Irishmen and an Italian kid, and we won, beat Pittsburgh North Catholic, which uh, was heavily favored and had at least two guys who went on to play football in the NBA, in the NFL. Wow. So there you go. And Scranton Prep is coming up on its 50th year, 
celebrating that state championship. So you thank know, you that, for rounding it out. That's cool <laughs> too because it's not a it's not a basketball memory directly related to you. It's it's your school and I think that's very cool, very classy for sure. Um, you were amazing with your time today. I think we learned a lot about that league, and it's. I think the listeners are going to want to definitely dive even deeper. I mean, I think you gave us a great glimpse into you know how exciting this league was for you and for a lot of other people. And like, there's definitely big names that you know me and Zach recognize, and I think names that other people recognized also. So you know, finding that deep dive, finding that player you never heard of, and learning more about him, I think will be very interesting for people. Um, Zach, before we let Mr. Sobel out of here, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for your time. I mean, like I said, I'm a history nut of the game. And, I mean, just being able to talk to you and learn about the guys like the Ray Scotts, you know, the Jim Beheims, and just all the other great names in this league was just a lot of fun. So thanks so much for your time. I can't wait to read the books. I know this is a very small sample size of what's in that book, so I'm just excited to uh, dive into it. So thanks again. Well, thank you, guys. I really enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. And any opportunity to tell this story, I'm happy to do it. So thanks to you, thanks to your listeners, and uh, hope we can talk again someday. Yeah, when, when yeah, the video's out, when the yeah, documentary's we'll to, out. Yeah, we'll have to get Jay on here too next time. So you know, tell Absolutely. Jay thank you too. Yeah, sure su- will. Super appreciate it. Have yourself a great day. Stay safe out there, my friend. You too, guys. Thanks take, a lot. Take care. You too. That was a great interview. Uh, a lot of, you know, there's a lot of history that gets lost. And, and unfortunately, every decade that goes by, it um, it becomes a lot easier to lose stories, especially from a league like that, which sounded like that league was just really exciting. And it was, um, you know, people don't realize there was only a couple NBA teams back in that day, you know, and there was a lot of great basketball players to, to you know, to hear you know, there's only 80 to 100 basketball players in the NBA at the time. Now there's 440. It, it makes you realize there's a lot of other talented guys that were playing in other places. And without, you know, without cable TV, with only being able to watch one game a week, you know, I remember my dad told me that about baseball, where they'd only get to watch one baseball game a week on TV. That was it. And a lot of people, too, back then, you got to remember, didn't have TVs. TVs were kind of luxuries back then. They're not like they were today. So it's really cool hearing you know, somebody want to catalog that history. And uh, it, it really sounds like Mr. Sobel does a great job of uh, cataloging that history. And you can hear the passion in his voice so many years later and how much that league meant to him. Oh, yeah. And I mean, it was a special era. And I love learning about that era because there wasn't a whole lot of guys that they could look back and emulate. Like you couldn't go on YouTube and look up a Magic Johnson or a Michael Jordan or, you know, there's no YouTube back then. So they had to use their own creativity. And that's why you saw a lot of unique looking shots or, you know, people who invented the hook shots. I mean, those guys are the pioneers of the game. And even in this league, like there's a lot of guys that were, you know, pioneers. And one of the things I wish I would have asked is what was the play style like back then? Was it really organized? Is it more of like a pickup game type feel i mean was it fast paced slow pace that's one thing i wish i would have thought to ask now just thinking about it, just because back then you really had to be very creative you know and in, in your own mind because like i said you couldn't emulate people so you had to use your own creativity i think so, that's what made that era so special in my opinion yeah i i think just guessing just putting a guess out there was probably more of a slow paced game with a lot of passing like you know like the nba was back then to a degree i think you know i wonder what one thing i was interested in that i didn't ask was i wonder if there was a shot clock you know yeah i mean mean, i'd assume there's a lot more freedom in a league like that where they're playing a lot fast paced like you got paul Ayers in. i mean that guy's a was a flamethrower man and uh so the paul arisons and those guys like i could definitely see it being more fast paced because they never get to play fast paced but you never know so that's true it's you know how it is it's that shot clock era when you don't have a shot clock it's like how do you take it how do you take a guy like that out of the game you slow the tempo down with the game and you just keep passing around until you find that shot you want and you take him out of his fast paced style you know so it it would have been interesting you know i mean a ton of great information i mean it really was gracious with his time and and support his book, you know, um, and go to the Facebook page, become a member, learn learn more about it. Here's here's stories that you don't get to hear. I mean, that's why we do our show so we can tell stories and you know hear people you know describe all facets of the game. You know, from you know not NBA. You know, everybody hears just about NBA. There's a lot of other leagues and a lot of other things that 
are out there that made basketball what it is. Speaking of that, there's a lot of people out there listening, and we really appreciate that very much. Um, thank you for all the support. Keep uh, keep sharing. Keep reaching out to us. You know, it's uh, it's pretty neat to have people, you know, like Mr. Sobel, like contact us and want to do an interview with us. I mean, that's that's pretty awesome. So. So anybody you know that wants to, uh, that you think should be on our show, you know, just uh, reach out on the socials and, and let us know. And that would be awesome to have other guests and uh, just keep expanding your basketball knowledge. So, Zach, is there anything you want to add before we get out of here? Yeah, I just want to say a big thanks to Sil Sobel. And, you know, I know Jay couldn't be here, but, you know, it'd be really fun to be able to talk to Jay one day once that documentary comes out. And, you know, he dropped the name Ray Scott. I've been uh, really trying to get Ray Scott. That guy's a huge pioneer, you know, very important to the game of basketball. Would love to have him. Um, I mean, a lot of names that he dropped that I just wish we, we could talk to because that was a very special era. So that was just a lot of fun today. So big thanks to Sil Sobel. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure you're good to yourself, good to others, and uh, stay safe out there. Enjoy. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you again soon.